Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Now more than ever, you need a laptop that can be as adaptable as you are. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Finally, a premium laptop at an affordable price. Starting at just $549, its light, thin design, vibrant touchscreen, powerful processor, and built-in HD camera and mic turns any room in your home into a classroom, office, or study hall. Available in three amazing colors the whole family will love. Visit surface.com slash laptop go for more details. It is starting with interrogating. First, white folks have to interrogate whiteness. They spend a lot of time wanting to try to interrogate blackness. I don't need you to understand me. I need you to understand yourself. You need to do the work around whiteness. What does it mean? What, why is it that you have never thought about it? Um, you know, when you ask that question, I ask that of my students very often, and they don't have an answer. I find that really fascinating. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 730 Podcast, and I'm your host, Wally White. The reason we call this the 730 Podcast is because in the 90s song Ebonics, the late great Big L raps, If you 730, that means you crazy. Some might call me 730. I was recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I'm trying to make sense of an issue both for myself and my audience that's too often misunderstood. I'm not a mental health expert. But I'm here to engage mental health professionals, athletes, artists, and other cultural influencers in conversations that explore how trauma and mental illness intersect with black culture. I was lucky to have Gary Bailey join me on 730. He's a professor of practice and assistant dean for community engagement and social justice at Simmons College's School of Social Work. In 2010, Professor Bailey was elected president of the International Federation of Social Workers. He is the first person of color to hold this position and only the third person from the U.S. to do so. I was lucky to meet Professor Bailey at the In My Mind Mental Health Conference back in October of 2019. There I was able to sit in on a presentation he gave and I was just floored to be honest with you. It was just a couple months after I had launched 7.30 and I was like thinking about different guests and which guests I wanted to get on. And I saw Gary speak and I was like, I have to get this guy on 730. There's no way I can do this project and not have him join me. So nervously, I approached Gary after his presentation. I actually felt like I was back in college approaching a professor about something or somebody that was giving a lecture. So I was like pretty intimidated, but I approached Gary and explain to him what the podcast was and how it sort of came about and and my hospitalization and all these other things and how I wanted to have him come on the show. And the first thing he said to me was, how are you now? Are you okay? It was like a very genuine and sincere check-in. He like really wanted to know that I was good. And after that moment, I was like, not only do I want to get this guy on my podcast, but I just want to be connected with him. And more recently, I've been struggling with a few things and, you know, hit, hit some emotional uh, barricades and walls. And Gary was one of the first people I reached out to. And I asked Gary if he had any resources or people that he could connect me to. Unsurprisingly, he responded and, and, and had a list of things and, and people he thought would be good for me to be in contact with. I, you know, I just appreciate this man so much and I got a lot of love and respect for him. He's funny, he's intelligent, 
he's he's all the things he brought like a certain level of richness to to this conversation that uh i think you all will appreciate so here it is from what i understand you were uh raised in cleveland ohio yes yeah cleveland is my home my parents were like numbers of black folks from the south who were part of the great northern migration to escape uh, this country's apartheid. And so they um, came north, uh, my dad first to Baltimore, and then later on to Cleveland. My mom came straight to Cleveland. Uh, my dad from Alabama, my mother from uh, Georgia, Tennessee. Um, and so Cleveland is, Cleveland is home. Cleveland is my hometown, place of birth. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize how much of a, and I've never been to Cleveland, but from what I know and understand, Cleveland is like this black mecca of sorts. Um, in some ways. And, it's but, also a black mess in some ways. A black too. mess, yeah. <laughs> no, but the, there's like a, it's really culturally rich. It's very embedded yeah. in black culture, especially as you just noted with the Great Migration and all that. It was like one of the big cities that, that blacks migrated to, like... You know. And also, I think it's important for people to be aware of, and I sometimes forget this, you know, Cleveland had the, the first elected black mayor of a major city in Carl Stokes, one of the first black Congress people elected post-Reconstruction in Lewis Stokes. Uh, we're the home of Caramu Theater, which is one of the oldest black theater companies in the, in the world, definitely in the United States. That was an old settlement house, and they used theater as part of the settlement uh, of ways in which you could help new immigrants or new, um, uh, new communities that were coming into a city to get acculturated. And so in Cleveland, the founders, and very often these founders of these settlement houses in other cities were um, Jewish progressives or social workers. Um, and so they used theater and Caramel still exists to this very day. I mean, it's almost, it's getting close to a hundred years old. And it and it's still rooted in some of the same values and stuff like that. It's still rooted, still rooted in the same values. Um, I don't know of a um, of a black kid or a, a black school or any of those things that has not participated in the work of Caramel Theater. It's just it's that significant a part of the legacy of Cleveland. Um, you know, our newspaper, the Call and Post, is one of the most influential black newspapers in. I would argue, in the country. So that there are those things that make Cleveland a very special place. There's also abject poverty. Um, uh, we are the Midwest. We're, the, you know, the, we're part of the Rust Belt. And so you've got lots of land um, and uh, lots of decay in our, in our urban centers. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine mix. And so, so what was it like for you growing up in, in Cleveland? Um, it was in some ways, my brother and I had an, what I would consider to be an idyllic childhood. You know, my, the one thing my mother said that she wanted once she, they, my parents had children because we were born very late was that she wanted a house. She promised my father, if you never, I'll never be buy me a house. I'll never ask you for anything else. My father said that was the first lie. Um, <laughs> and so we had, uh, we grew up in a house and what, was originally a predominantly, we were the second black family to move in. It was a very diverse um, community uh, street. Our next door neighbors were Japanese who had been interned 
um, as part of World War II. The neighbors on the other side of us were um, Poles who had escaped communism. Uh, the family across the street were German. Uh, it was a black family. So it was this kind of hodgepodge of diversity, um, which was exciting to be a part of. Um, and to be able to grow up in a place where you've got your own yard, your own places to play. Um, it was a great childhood. It's a childhood that I look back on and um, wish that other kids could have nowadays when it's not safe to be a kid anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Say it for again. So many reasons. Yeah. For so many reasons. To be able to go out and play in the summer until it got dark and nobody worried about you because nobody, it wasn't that people didn't hurt kids then, but it was just unusual. And so you came home when it got dark. You need to come home after it got dark or um, to go to uh, being able to walk around the corner to your school and come home for lunch um, because that's what everybody did um, because schools were neighborhood based. Right. Um, so your te- you knew your teachers, your teachers knew you, your family, your parents could walk up to school and bring you a book if you forgot your book or pick you up if it was raining. Um, those days are gone for many kids. What did your parents do? My dad had a third grade education. Uh, my father just was not given the ability, the permission in rural Alabama to have an education. Um, and he had to work. You know, he was going up post Great Depression and he picked cotton along with his brothers and sisters. And that's what they did. So he worked from the time he was he stopped going to school in the third grade. And my dad was one of the smartest people I've ever known. Um, I always said my brother and I say that he should have been an engineer. That's the kind of mind he had. He could look at things and he could take things apart in his head and understand how they worked. My mother had the luxury of, for reasons that I have never really understood, but she had gone to high school. Um, she was also very bright. Um, and so together they formed this kind of team. And my father worked at Ford Motor Company and my mother was a home, uh, stay-at-home mom, um, volunteered uh, at our school library, had, had Worked one day a week at doing day's work, if you know what that is, which is you go out and clean someone's house for one day a week. Um, and so she did that to have a little extra pocket money for herself. But and then once once my brother and I got bigger, she went to work for the Boston for the Boston for the Cleveland Public School System, and she worked in the janitorial staff. Did your parents really accentuate the value of education? Is that where that came from for you? Yes. Yes, it, that was a non-negotiable. It, you know, it was. There were two things that I think my parents said to my brother. Now there were multiple things. One was that there was no question that we were going to go to college. That was just a non-negotiable. I don't think that, uh, you know, my parents could could have told you when we were born just what college means. But that was what we were going to do, and that was what they worked for. They worked very hard to make sure that the monies were there when the time came for my brother and I to be able to go to college and not have finances be, be a problem. So they worked really, really hard. Um, and the other was that we were gonna be professionals. So from as early as I can remember, I was going to be a doctor and my brother was going to be a lawyer. And my brother is an attorney and my parents were dismayed when I became a social worker, but I'm a doctor, so it all worked out, right? Your parents wanted you to take this very, I would say, almost um, 
like type A track in life, right? right? And right. I'm wondering, how did you get to that place? How did you go from being or wanting to having this desire to be a doctor to mm. becoming a social worker? Social worker, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm of a generation that once your parents told you something, you did it. It, it was a non kind of non-negotiable. Um, and I loved my pediatrician, Dr. Evans. I'll never forget him. Um, I, he was, he was my doctor until I was 18. You don't keep your pediatricians until you're 18. So he became someone I wanted to be. Um, I went to Tufts university for college and, you know, I was pre-med, did what I was supposed to do, really didn't like the sciences, but I did them. I, I could do it. Um, and one winter, Tufts used to have intercession classes, so you could come back between the time that the spring semester started and, and, and the winter break. And I, I was now out. Um, I was dating. I think I might have had some sort of little boyfriend here in Boston, so I, I need to get back. Right. I, had, <laughs> I, I, had, I had a boo, and I had to get home. Uh. Um, and the only way I could do that was to take a course. So I came back and took some of those courses. And it was a course taught by a random kind of thing. And it was taught by a woman whose name is Jane Greenspan. I'll never forget her name either. And she was a social worker. I'd never met one. Or the ones I knew did bad things to black people. They took people's children. They checked on benefits. They were not cool people. Um, and she would talk about the work she was doing. And I thought, wow. You can work with people and make a difference in their lives and do the kind of work that I've been doing naturally because I was my friend's confidant. I was the problem solver. I was the advice giver. I understood confidentiality. I didn't betray my friend's secrets. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that I had a, this is naturally who I want to be. And I up and switched everything I wanted to do at that moment, much to my parents' dismay. Yeah. what, What was their reaction like to that? Um, you know, if you knew me as a kid, you would know this is probably not the worst thing that I have ever done or shared with them. So they were, they, they weren't sure what the, it was like many people today don't know what social work is or who social workers are. Um, but they trusted me enough to know that I, I would make the best out of whatever it was that I chose to do. And so they were supported. Um, a funny story is the highlight for my parents was um, I was a, a, an announcement about a job was made and it went national and it ended up I ended up with my picture in Jet Magazine um, and my parents were just you know that was the Black Bible I mean Jet Magazine was it and so there's my picture in Jet Magazine as far as my parents were concerned now I was a success. <laughs> <laughs> I had made Jet magazine, and they could run up and down and show all their friends, look, look, he's in Jet. He's That's defeated. it. So you just said something that I think is really interesting and important to touch upon. You said many people don't know what social work is and what social workers mm-hmm. do. If you were talking to somebody that didn't know and really wanted to understand the ins and outs of it, what would you what would you say to them that social workers are have a, a what i consider to be three uh, three legs of a stool um yes we are people who have an innate ability to 
uh, be compassionate and to connect to human beings. So we look at the interpersonal relationships that help, that all of us need to exist. Uh, we have the ability for um, uh, compassion, which is the ability, the higher frame form of compassion for me is empathy to connect with people in a way that is not Sympathy is intellectual, but when you get down to that feeling state of being able to connect with people at a human level, we do that. But it's also the, the most important part of what makes social work unique is the competence, the skill base, the pedagogy. We are a profession. Um, it is not a profession that everyone can do. So there are skill sets in terms of developing uh, clinical expertise, diagnostic skills, treatment skills. We're the largest providers of mental health services in the United States. Uh, more than psychiatrists and psychologists combined, um, so that we are the clinical front line um, in this nation. And But it's not only that. So that's the micro. At the macro, we are doing community engagement, community building. We are um, doing policy work, legislative work. Um, if you think about uh, most of your elected officials, when you look at constituent services, the lead person on their team is a social worker who's doing the assessments and the interventions at the local level. Uh, we hold elected office. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan um, is a Democrat from Michigan is a social worker. Uh, Representative Barbara Lee, uh, who is chair, was chair of the Black Caucus, is a clinical social worker. Um, so you look at all of the places that we can be, but it's always about looking at the person in the environment. It is looking at in a holistic way at what helps or hinders all of us from functioning. And the common denominator is social justice. We are about changing the systems that Im impact people's lives negatively. So it's all of that together. And so you also just mentioned something along the lines of the social workers that you knew or, or people in the black community knew did bad things to like they, they did bad bad things to black mm -hmm. people. Can you uh, expound on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I would encourage anyone to watch the, the the movie called In with James Earl Jones and the late great Diane Carroll. And what you see is the ways in which social workers were seen. Or watch the old show East Side West Side um, with George C. Scott and Cicely Tyson, which is, I think, one of the best shows that was ever on television. It was about social workers. But if we think about the image for most people around social workers in the 50s and the 60s and the 40s, um, you know, we worked in departments of public welfare, and our job was to check on people's benefits, to make sure that there wasn't a man in the house, or to make sure that you didn't have a telephone when you were on benefits, to make sure that, to basically make sure that if you were poor, that you were poor, um, that you really didn't have any of those things that other people have. Um, and there's that great scene in Claudine where the social worker just drops by unannounced, which I just always makes me cringe, um, and where the family goes around hiding things and moving things because, you know, they figured out a way to be able to have some of the things that any group of people should have, um, but they have to hide them um, because the, the social worker is going to be there to make sure that if those things are there, that they then don't get the benefits that they also need. And that's the image of social work. We also, for many people, we're the people who take people's children away, or we put older people in nursing homes. And yes, both of those things are true. 
1% of the social work workforce are child welfare um, workers who work for state agencies. I've had a 40 plus year career. I've never taken a child away from anybody, though there may have been times when I, I could have thought about doing that. Um, my work has gone in helping support families. So those are some of the, the myths out there about who we are and what we do. You just made a, a, a reference to social workers uh, working for government agencies, the mm-hmm. 1% of social workers that do. And I think the perception for a lot of people are or is that social workers are so tied to the American establishment, as you sort mm-hmm. of allude to. To the state. To the state. Right. Yeah. And if you're speaking with someone who is doing social work, who is mm-hmm. tied to the state, who's mm-hmm. working under that that sort of guise, what recommendations or suggestions do you have for them in terms of building that trust, sort of trying to figure out ways of maybe building community and, and finding solutions that don't reinforce the very things and perceptions that people have of these institutions? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're asking some really great questions. And um, I teach, I currently have in my classes uh, students who work for our Department of Children and Families, which is our Children Protective Agency. I think the most important thing about having, if we do need child welfare systems, we do need systems that protect children, they can't protect themselves. And bad things happen to kids. You hear it all the time. Um, So that there are ways in which we, uh, there's absolutely no question that we need to have those systems in place. Um, I talk to my students about how to begin thinking about influencing a system to be more preventative than interventive. Um, you know, one of the things that when our, I've been in Boston and Massachusetts long enough to remember when we didn't have a child welfare protective system and when it was created. When our Department of Social Services, as it was then called, was created, families who knew they were in a crisis. They could tell you, I'm in a crisis. I need some help. Either I'm in a financial crisis or I'm in an emotional crisis or, you know, I'm just in a place where I can't control myself. They could go to the department and they could ask for help. And so something egregious could be prevented because you got in on the front end. Um, Now we have a system that is interventive. You have to wait for something to happen. And then you go in to protect the child after something has happened. To me, that's just the the cart before the horse. And I work with my students to, A, to help them to think about how can they help to shape the system so that we're getting to people sooner um, and in a way that then makes things less catastrophic. Uh, For me, success is not about removing a kid. That means we failed. Um, because once that kid is removed, you really don't extract their family from them. You extract them from their families. Um, and so how then do we begin to think about family, um, helping families to better function? So competence is one of the key factors. Having the best professional workforce in that area that you possibly can is key. Um, to make sure that you have people who understand and identify as social workers. So many of our child welfare departments have people who've been grandparented in who really come with no no professional training um, in the field so that they have gotten a job, been there a long time. Um, Many are good people, but they haven't had the kind of pedagogical training 
um, that's necessary to really be effective. But you're, you're alluding to something. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a teacher in New York. How do we, people working in schools like myself, take the approach of m- more intervention? Um, oh, no, no, I meant pr- uh, how, do, how do we as no, no, educators no. sort of take the approach of more sort of preventative m- measures as, a pro- uh, as opposed to uh, intervention. intervention? Yeah. Right, right. Um, I think that one of the most important things is I'm president of a high school, uh, of a pilot high school here in Boston. Um, and uh, we have the ability, because we're semi-autonomous, to do things that other Boston public schools don't get to do. One of the things, and so I'm going to give you an example of a best practice. Um, we have a very, very, um, uh, uh, I want to say full, um, successful, um, complementary uh, student support services aspect of our curriculum that is embedded with our educational um, performance. So our teachers and our um, student support teams are work together very closely so that if you were to see something in my school, you could talk to immediately one of our social workers who would be able to work with you to figure out what the intervention needs to be so something doesn't get worse. Because I do think it's very important that wherever possible, um, people stay in their own wheelhouse so that it is not up to me as chair of the board to intervene in the curricular decisions that are going on in a school. And it is not always going to be as effective for the educators to try to be the therapist. Um, But how do they work together both to, but you might have a relationship with a kid that I don't. Exactly. and so you can help get them to me and make me be okay for them to be able to get the support that they need. Yeah, and that and that happens a lot. That happens so much for me. Just today I was um in the last two days, I was introducing two students to the new social worker out of school. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, it's a way of reinforcing trust. It's a way of building some sort of community where the kid doesn't just see it as this is someone I need to go talk to. Um, yeah, it, it's just the, the the stuff I'm seeing in schools is just that the need for very comprehensive mental health services goes beyond even having social workers in the school. No question. Absolutely no question. You need nursing. You need access to psychiatry. You know, we're seeing kids who are coming to school with more um, with more need. Um, you know, I'm not a great proponent of medicating children, depending upon where they are developmentally. But there are some kids who um, who may need some meds, and those need to be monitored very closely because of their endocrinological development. So, um, yeah, kid, it's more complex than it's ever. We're aware of it being more complex. I don't know that it is definitely more complex, but I think that we are more aware than we than we once were. I also think you made me think also, Ollie, that the importance of being able to normalize um, problems, 
you know, how do we, and that's, that's something I think in classrooms, teachers have such an, a capacity to be able to do. How do we destigmatize mental health, uh, mental illness? Um, you know, what would we do? I, I'm often surprised when I think if a, if a child in our classroom had cancer, we would do so much to talk to other kids about once we had permission that Bobby has cancer, a certain kind, and this is what they need, or you know, they can't be played with roughly, but they can still be played with, it's not contagious, da 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 da. Um, we tend to go silent when it's around mental illness or mental health issues, um, or if there's a family issue. And I think there's a way in which we can destigmatize that, but sometimes just by putting something in our curriculum. Um, that speaks to all children, not just to the one that's there. As evidence and data released by the CDC in November, COVID-19 has increased emotional distress amongst American youth. Between March and October, mental health-related hospital emergency visits increased by 24% for kids ages 5 to 11 and 31% for youth ages 12 to 17. This data is in comparison to the same time period last year. How our government and school districts respond to providing mental health services in schools following this pandemic will have huge ramifications on this next generation of Americans. What sort of wisdom could you impart on social workers, both black and white, in responding to race and racism when working with their clients? First, you have to identify it in yourself. Um, it's really important, particularly if you are a social worker of color, is to be able to understand that you are impacted constantly by the realities of racism. You know, I will say to my students that I leave my house every morning in what some people consider one of the best neighborhoods in the city of Boston. Okay, I live in the heart of the South End. It's a beautiful neighborhood. But I walk down my steps not knowing, I know the minute I leave my house that I'm no longer safe. The minute I step outside of my door, from the moment I leave my door until I get into the door of my office, that my agency is beyond my full control. Something can happen um, to me by someone who thinks that they have more authority over me than I do. And the stress of walking through life all, always on guard is exhausting. Um, it's debilitating, it is exhausting. Um, so I could be in a place where I deny that or I can be in a place where I say that's real. Um, I say it's real and that then it re requires me to be able to um, think about the methods of self-care that go into helping me to be able to do my job, which is I can't have my tank empty, so I've got to figure out ways to, to keep fueling myself. Um, and so that becomes very important. So I say that self-care is first and foremost for, uh, uh, for my fellow social workers of color because we're giving out so much that we need to be also able to provide some self-care, and particularly when it comes to issues of race. I need to be in spaces with other black and brown people. Uh, you know, I just need that, that feeds my soul. We may not always agree, we may not have things in common, but there's some things I don't have to talk about because they know it, right? It's that unspoken language that I don't have to explain. What I just said to you about how I start my day. I, I understand that. Bingo. 100%. I, right, and so then I have, if I say that in predominantly white spaces, oh really? 
can you tell me how? <laughs> how does that show up? Are you sure? Oh, I think you're overreacting. Um, aren't, don't you think you're being a tad dramatic? No, bullshit. I don't think I don't think anything. I know. And it's really interesting how exhausting that is of always having to explain yourself um, and validate your lived experiences to others. So that's what I would tell white folks. Sometimes you just need to listen and understand that you may not know, but someone else has a lived experience and you need to listen to it and know that that's their truth. My story, my narrative is true and real. Um, and there's nothing more frustrating. If you want to talk about empathy, this has helped me to understand when my sister friends will talk about, you know, th th this person I'm involved with, they just don't get it. Every time I try to explain to them what's going on in my life, they try to tell me what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling versus listening, right? And just hearing what I have to say. And I thought, oh, I get that. I know what that means. That's frustrating as hell because you don't need someone to fix it. You just want someone to hear and not debate that what's going on for you is real. So it's to acknowledge people's lived reality. That's for black and white practitioners. The third thing is that the clients know themselves better than anybody. You know, your students know themselves better than anybody. They might not be able to frame it and they might not always have the emotional language, but they know themselves. They might not be ready to share it, but they know themselves. So, you know, I train physicians. And one of the things that I've learned from working with really good physicians is that they will say the following. I'm here to help figure out what's going on with your body, which you know better than anybody. You know what's going on for you better than anybody. My job is to help figure out how to help you to feel better than anybody. And so it's really how do we, how do we align and partner with. Um, the other thing is to stop pretending that race doesn't matter. Race always matters. Uh, race is, you know, you have a country that was created based on race. That's what makes America, people talk about make America great. Um, we also have to talk about what made America white. Uh, and what made America white was the ways in which it used black, uh, yellow, brown people uh, and built a country on our backs and then pretended that they didn't do that. We spend a lot of time validating our own experience to try to prove something to someone who really doesn't want that, doesn't want to see it or hear. So that's what I would tell my social work colleagues. One is stand in your own truth and own it. And to the others is to be able to listen and hear it, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Um, and to not pretend that race doesn't matter and it's not always present and important. You talk a lot about this idea of primary versus secondary trauma. Can you break that down for, for sure. my audience? Primary trauma is when something happens to you directly. So you are out and, uh, and it can be something like um, you are hit by a bicycle, um, which you don't see coming. And, um, and so that can be uh, physical trauma and emotional trauma. You can uh, be in a place where you see something violent happen. The National Institutes of Health say that there'll be about 1.4 million Americans who will be diagnosed with PTSD, who have never seen combat, who've never been in a war zone, just by living every day that they are developing post-traumatic stress disorder. 
that's a heavy, that's really alarming because it says that we have so much going on in our society um, that impacts us negatively that we don't know what to do with. Um, and there's a new study that was just, that I just read this week out of Rutgers um, that was really looking at vicarious trauma and uh, it was looking at racial incidents amongst black youth. But, uh, and five, most black youth have, can identify five incidents at a minimum. So this is the average, five incidents of discrimination in, a, on a, in every week. Um, but what was really fascinating to me was that there were no gender differences around this, but also of interest was the vicarious ways in which trauma happens. So much of what goes on for our kids now happens online. It's things that they're seeing. Um, I don't see online or any of that stuff as the enemy, but I do think that what we have to look at is they now have access to things that are disruptive for them in ways that we're not really taking into account. I saw something where you were breaking down uh, these sort of three prongs of racism in symbolic racism, adversive racism, and, and micro inequities. Did I get that oh, correct? There micro, there's microaggressions, micro inequities, there's symbolic racism, there's personal racism, and then I would add to that that there's internalized racism that we don't spend a lot of time talking about because that's, and this is probably not the most politic way to describe this, but to me, it's really is what does it mean when we drink the white Kool-Aid? Um, you know, how do we begin to Kamara Jones, Dr. Kamara Jones has a great piece on <clears throat> on TED, a TED talk called The Gardener's Tale. This brilliant, brilliant uh, soci uh, public health practitioner. Uh, uh, but anyway, she talks about uh, the white man's ice is colder and with internalized racism, internalized depression. You get raised to believe that if it's not white, it's not good. So, it, you know, if you want a lawyer, you would get a white lawyer. Um, and sometimes people would say, I need a white Jewish lawyer because Jewish lawyers are the best lawyers. Like, we're going to really tell the truth. No, we're really it's like every talk. rap song. Right. You know what I mean? That's because that the, was the model. Um, and so and she tells this thing that people go by the store, a black store that has ice to go to the white store because the white man's ice is colder. Um, that's how we can we buy into these preconceived ideas. So we're not as smart as, we're not as good as, we're not as skilled as we are. We're not as uh, attractive as, um, because we compare ourselves to something we can never be versus looking at the beauty of our brown, uh, our brownness and celebrating that we look at and compare to whiteness. Well, I'm never going to be blonde. I'm just, there's some things I'm never going to be, right? Um, so it's, that's the internalized. Um, and I think that's the piece that if I were going to say, where do I think we should be focusing more on? That's the place we need to also own for ourselves. We can keep focusing outwardly about what the man is doing to us, but what are we doing to us from what we have allowed to be in our head? Um, this is a leap. That's why I love Lizzo so much. You know, Lizzo is showing you what it, what self-love is. And people get freaked out because how dare you not look like what... If Halle Berry was saying the same things Lizzo was saying, no one would have a peep. Not at if all. Halle Berry, if Halle Berry showed up and sat at a game with her butt cheek, no one would have a peep. She does. Oh, they basically. love it. They love it. 
they'd, they'd be applauding. Oh, is she gorgeous? Da 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 da. Lizzo is basically saying, "I love me, and and I'm okay with me, and that's so powerful, and that is so radical. Self love is radical. Um, you know, uh, Essex Hemphill and Marlon Riggs." Um, you know, uh, I think it was Essex who basically said that uh, black men loving black men is a revolutionary act. And why is it revolutionary? Because we're loving ourselves. You look and you're seeing reflected back at you something that looks like you, smells like you, feels like you, so that you're loving yourself by loving by loving on someone who looks like you. Um, and I think that that helps to break away that internalized stuff. Um, and that's a whole other discussion, whole other discussion about the white object as being something that makes it mean that we've succeeded and we're okay and we're validated. I know that you wrote a piece for the Huffington Post uh, titled How to Talk About Race. And you're talking about it as being a really pivotal moment for us to actually have these conversations, even though it's very difficult, you know, the things that are happening are very difficult. How do we facilitate these, these conversations of race, right? I'm thinking, I'm a teacher, like, what could I be doing with my students? What can people be doing within their, uh, their communities? What can people be doing within their professional organizations? Like, how, how, how can we facilitate these conversations in meaningful ways that, that breed some understanding and compassion and empathy, as you so, so allude to earlier in the show? Or, you know, that's such a big question, Wally. Race is really complicated. It requires us to do our own work first before we start helping, trying to think about helping someone else. We have to put on our mask first before, you know, like the airlines tell you, put your mask on first before you put on anybody else's because you can't help someone if you haven't helped yourself. And it is starting with interrogating. First, white folks have to interrogate whiteness. They spend a lot of time wanting to try to interrogate blackness. I don't need you to understand me. I need you to understand yourself. You need to do the work around whiteness. What does it mean? What, why is it that you have never thought about it? Um, you know, when you ask that question, I ask that of my students very often, and they don't have an answer. I find that really fascinating. You know, Toni Morrison says the same thing. What does it mean when white people have not thought about what it means to be a race, um, to be a color, uh, and what that manifests and means? So that's the, that's the most difficult question for white folks. And for black folks, I think it really is also what does it mean to us to fully be, um, how do I put this? I, and this is an odd word. What does freedom really mean? What does it really mean to us to be free? Um, what does it mean to have agency? Um, what does it mean? Um, what does it mean to not be white? Um, because that's what we compare. We are, we're black because we're not white, right? And so white becomes the thing to which, well, white people are getting it. White people are allowed to. White people get to do this. White, pe But it's always measuring ourselves against white people. Or that's what white people do. You know, that's the right. other narrative. You know, yeah. That's how they do that. Or this is, you know how it is with them. But we, we've got so many ways in which we talk about that. You know, when I was away, I was out at a party and someone said, and it was an interesting question. 
and these were black folks who were asking it, and they were doing some sort of an interesting test. And they said, it, would you rather be tall or white? And I thought for a minute, I said, I'd rather be tall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm short. Well, I'd rather be tall. And they said, really? You'd rather be tall? I said, yes, I'd rather be tall. I don't want to be white. I'd rather be tall. Most people said they'd rather they'd like for once in their life to try to feel what it was to be white. To each his own. Well, but I found that really interesting because then I thought about it and I thought, well, maybe it might be interesting for a, a moment to be able to blink into a white body to see what do you really think about? How do you really look at the world? But do I have to really be white to understand that? You know, and maybe my thinking that tall people have it so easy is false, too. But I'm convinced I'd be able to see better. I wouldn't always be hopping up on things and, you know, people would be. So I got some facts about being tall. Right. Good things. But it does say to me that we sometimes have we have bought into white being right. I'm not surprised that we've done that, but we also have to own with true meaning of being black and proud and to really be proud of what that means you know uh that's where i am now i don't owe people examples of the hurt that that i've been given i don't have to keep proving what i feel um because that's an exercise in control as long as you're telling me well give me an example of why you feel that way, it also means that you don't have to stick, stay in the space to have the difficult conversation about why am I feeling. You want evidence about what I'm feeling. I want to talk about why I'm feeling. And those are very, very different things. The why I'm, the what I'm feeling is the difficult conversation. I'm feeling this, this, and this. And then you have to sit with that. If we argue about the why, that's debatable because I don't have science on that, but you can't argue with my feelings. My feelings belong to me. And the reason I gave you that example, Wally, was it was really interesting that, that it really did make me think, what would I rather be? You know, I'm, I'm a race man. I'm a proud black man. I am, I, you know, I'm, I'm brother from another, I'm, I'm all of those things. But boy, I had to think for a minute, would I rather be white or tall? And you, you, you know, because then it means, okay, I'm committing now to something. And it was a conversation and we were all black. And, and what was interesting is all of us also were under height. So it was a great question to pose. Everybody's on the same level. We were on the same level. It was fascinating. If you could, you know, if you had some parting words for, for my audience, what, what would you say? that we are, we are living, breathing parts of humanity that um, we as a people uh, have survived the, the middle passage um, to come to land that uh, forcibly um, that has never been kind or good to us. Um, yet we persevered, and it's in that perseverance that I always find strength because 
it says to me that I'm made of something that is quite special. My late father used to say to me, never forget that your people were walking on land when others were climbing out of the water. Never, ever forget that. Um, so what I would say to everybody is that your history really is your, becomes your foundation to know it. Um, and we have to understand that the systems that we are working against, um, that we can change them. We're not, we're not victims. Um, things may be done to us, but I refuse to allow my people to take on a victim um, personality because we do have agency, we do have power, we do have control. Um, and it's the young folks um, that I really am turning to, to want to be able to support, to not stand in their way, but to work with, because they're going to have to take this thing to the next level. And I'm looking at and want young people to begin thinking about what is the society that they're going to want to rebuild, because they're going to have an opportunity to build the world from you know, from the, the what's left of what we've created, and then they'll be able to test this model to move it forward. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, and I'm unapologetic about that. Mental health is the most important thing that we can have, and if you don't love yourself, you can't love nobody else. RuPaul is right. <laughs> that's, that's a wrap. Gary mentioned the need to normalize mental health amongst kids in schools. And it made me think back to the inception of this project. Prior to launching this podcast, I consulted my friend Shannon, a fellow podcaster from Detroit. I asked him for tips and suggestions on how I should go about launching this project. I had a lot of reservations about injecting my own voice and experience into 730. Shannon insisted I had to. He said the topic was deeply personal and considering my experience, I needed to bring my audience into my world. My trepidation was largely centered around boundaries I've tried to maintain around my work as a teacher. I didn't want my colleagues and students to understand the magnitude to which I struggled leading up to my hospitalization. I didn't want them to know my world. And then I thought about the importance of using my experience in this platform to help normalize and destigmatize conversations around mental health, most especially for my students. Several of them have said things to me like, when's the next episode of 7.30 dropping? We need that. One of my students even expressed his desire to become a psychologist. When I look back, I'm reminded that I haven't journeyed this alone. Shannon may have given me some of the best advice I've ever received. Thank you, my brother. And shout out to the 313. All right, before we close out, I just want to thank Gary for joining us. Man, I love that guy. I love him. I love him. I love him. Uh, Gary, keep doing what you're doing. As we get to close in on 2020, I know it's been a, a trying year for all of us. And I hope y'all are being gentle with yourselves uh, and trying to take care of yourselves as much as possible. And so I'm out with that one. Always peace. Always love.